Well, I was reading a book. We're, we're in a series called The Table, and uh, I've just, we're in a part of our series where one of the outworkings, we kind of started this last week, but one of the outworkings of what I think Jesus was hoping to accomplish by giving his church this meal was that we would learn a new way to be a family. We would be a different kind of community, one the world has never seen before, And it would involve taking a lot of different people and having them find ways to unite because of what Jesus has done. In one of the books I was reading this week, uh, they used the metaphor of a salad to talk about what the church can be and should be. And it made me laugh because the author gave three ways to eat a salad, the third way being the right way, and uh, I probably eat it more the first two ways than the third way, so I was chuckling about that. The first way of eating a salad is to fill your bowl with iceberg lettuce or spinach leaves, maybe some tomatoes, some carrots, and then smother it with salad dressing. So you don't taste any of the different things. You just taste the salad dressing, which I feel convicted of. At any time my wife and I are out for a meal and there's a salad involved in the meal, my wife is always like, can I have the salad dressing on the side? And I'm like, smother that thing. I don't want to taste the vegetables. Apparently, that's not the right way to eat a salad. The second way is then to separate each item in your salad around on your plate so you only eat them one at a time, which I do sometimes too. I don't really like carrots. And so when I get a salad with carrots, I mean, I I don't hate them, but I don't love them. But I want to, so I eat all the carrots first so they don't taint the rest of the salad for the rest of the meal, right? But apparently you're not supposed to do that either. So the third way, the right way, according to this author, and they're probably right, actually. I'm not the most cultured when it comes to salad eating. The third way to make and eat a salad is to gather all your ingredients. Let's say some spinach, kale, arugula, iceberg lettuce, if you must, and chop them into smaller bits and then cut up some tomatoes and carrots and onions and red pepper and purple cabbage. And then you add some nuts and dried berries and you sprinkle some Romano cheese and finally drizzle, drizzle over the salad some good olive oil, which somehow brings the taste of each item out to its fullest. The author says, if we want to get the church right, we have to learn to see it as a salad in a bowl made the third way, the right way, of course. For a good salad is a fellowship of different tastes, all mixed together with the olive oil accentuating the taste of each. The earliest churches were made up of folks from all over the social map, but they formed a fellowship of different tastes, a mixed salad of the best kind. Or I'll say it more directly, we kind of started to get into this last week. When a church community consists of people who outside the church would maybe hate each other, never be seen together, never eat together, or, or maybe just never be civil talking to each other. But when they can gather here and call each other brother and sister and love each other and serve each other, it displays what Paul will call early in the letter to the Corinthians, the foolishness of God, which is really the wisdom of God. And last week we talked a lot about one of the divides, the Jew-Gentile divide, this ethnic divide. Uh, Some of these many ways that we try to divide ourselves, we structure ourselves, we arrange ourselves. I like to call it Babylonian thinking. 
Jew and Gentile, we, we, we try to figure out ways that we can feel superior to others and maybe even try to make others feel inferior. And we talked about how Paul, he doesn't want to eliminate Jewishness or Gentileness. You can continue to, to live your life that way and celebrate your culture. But when you gather at the table of the Lord to worship Jesus, you've got to find ways to set certain things aside so that you can be one family at the table. In fact, if Paul saw all Christian groups adopting only one cultural model, he would probably see that as a failure. Because it would, it would be different than a community that consists of differences that discover a new way of life together. Where the differences enrich each other. And we learn from one another. And we find ways to, you could say, cross-pollinate in peace. So we're going to look at another angle of this in the early church. Uh, maybe the clearest expression of this when we talk about the table of the Lord in the early church. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's... We'll look at the larger passage from which we read. We usually read from this when we participate in the Lord's Supper together. But we're going to pick up a few verses earlier in verse 17. And I just want to walk us through. It's kind of, it's really, this is kind of an isolated unit in the letter. So it kind of stands on its own. Paul begins in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. That's an indicting thing for Paul to say, isn't it? He says, first, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And he says, and if you've been tracking through the letter, (laughs) to some extent, I believe it. And then he gets sarcastic in verse 19. When Paul gets irritated somewhat with the Galatians, mostly with the Corinthians, when he gets irritated, he gets sarcastic. Of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. And you can feel good about yourselves. Verse 20, when you meet together, you're not really interested. I mean, when the early church met, there's good reason to believe every time they gathered for worship, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And when when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. It's not really the Lord's Supper at all. Because some of you hurry to eat your own meal and you don't wait, you don't share with others. And as a result, some are going hungry while others are getting drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you listen to this? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? Paul says, what am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Paul's walking through what's going on. And I'm going to kind of lay out the scenario. But one thing I want to point out before I forget, because this just fascinates me. Paul, Paul is more upset because the poor are, are hardly eating anything. The rich are bringing fancy meals and getting drunk, and he's more upset about these class distinctions playing out in their gathering than he is about people getting drunk at church. Just think about that one. (laughs) That's how worked up he is about this. Now, the early church, they met in houses, um, probably 30 to 40 to 50 people most likely. 
And there's a handful of, you know, as you read through, we got to do some time travel and some culture travel, what was going on in the first century in the Roman world when they gathered together. There's probably a combination of these things. But for one, the, the lower class people, the slaves and slavery, slavery powered the Roman Empire like electricity powers our lives today. There were a lot of slaves and they worked longer hours. And so part of the thing here is that that the, the, the higher class people who are gathering to worship Jesus, they don't have to wait till the end of the workday and they're beginning this whole thing when, before everyone's there, right? So some of the best food is eating. But you also have a reality in the Roman world where, where privileged invites mattered. It mattered greatly who was invited to meals and where they sat and what they ate. And it was just normal. It was Roman thinking. It was Roman practice. And I would say it was Babylonian thinking that at dinner parties, you learned a lot about where you fit in the pecking order. The most important people were invited to the party early. They sat in the seats of honor and they had access to the most expensive, delicious food and they had plenty of it. So, so this is just the practice. So you've got a couple of different things going on. And then thirdly, depending on whose house this was taking place in, but some of the larger homes had some private, smaller rooms where, where again, it's possible, I don't, we don't know exactly how this was all playing out, but it's possible that just only, only, only the privileged were invited to the smaller rooms where the best food was. I mean, we're, we're trying to enter into the story, but whatever was going on, class distinction was playing a major role. And I think part of what is making Paul so angry is A, not only are they bringing Roman values, they're, they're being more Roman than Christian, or we would say Babylonian. They're, they're not only are they bringing Babylonian values into the church, but some of them aren't bothered by it. They're indifferent to it. Rather than gathering at the table as a sign of their oneness in Christ, the Corinthians were using the table to reinforce these social divisions. And Paul says, I will not I, I, I can't say anything good about this. It's horrible. Well, we'll keep reading. Verse 23, this is the part that we read regularly. And we will again in a little while. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces. And he said, this is my body. And it's given for you. We've talked about that. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant, this new relationship between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. <laughs> Actually, one of my seminary professors used to love to talk about this verse and say, look, there are some churches that have kind of left the gospel to a degree. But if they're still practicing communion, at least in those spaces, the gospel is still being announced in some way, shape, or form. Just the creative creativity of Jesus to give us this meal. The gospel is announced every time this meal is shared. Verse 27, so anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, and again, the context is allowing class distinctions to define how the meal is practiced. Anyone who does this is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul says that is why you should examine yourself 
You should pay attention. Why are you bringing Babylonian values into the church? That's not how we operate. Examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are, and we'll talk a little bit about this, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Again, that's pretty heavy language. That is why many of you, and this is a little mysterious, I'm not going to try to explain this one to you, but Paul says, that's why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. I guess the easiest way to say that this morning is Paul does not always see some clear divide between the physical and the spiritual. (laughs) Those of us living in a secular world, we start to see a divide between the physical and the spiritual. Paul doesn't. That doesn't fit in his worldview. Verse 31, but if we would examine ourselves, then we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. I'll try to walk you through what he's saying there. Verse 33, and we'll come back to this. I think this is important. So, my dear brothers and sisters, we're not gathering based on socioeconomic divides. We're gathering as a family. You are my brothers and sisters. When you gather for the Lord's Supper, then wait for each other. If you're really hungry, well, then eat at home. Why? So you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. And then Paul says, I've got some other things to talk about. We'll talk about it when I get there. That's our passage for the morning. And I guess what I want to make clear, I felt a response when I read this. But, but Paul is being pretty clear that we can't bring these worldly divisions into the church. How is the world divided up since the days of Cain in the first city? Uh, Since the days of Nimrod and the founding of Babylon, how have we divided the world up to to protect ourselves, to gain privilege and status, to make ourselves feel superior to others and make others inferior? Well, we have economic divisions. We have ethnic divisions. We have nationality divisions. We have gender divisions and certainly In the day and age that we live in right now, and again, one of the reasons I wanted to do this series before 2024, we have political divisions, right? I mean, we we could keep going. We have have sports divisions. I mean, we could get into the Packers and the Bears, right? I mean, we could the Cubs and the Sox or the Cardinal. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways that we divide ourselves up. And yes... I mean, we're talking about being the church and gathering here. Sometimes you have different opinions. You will. That's, we're not going to come in and agree about everything when we come to church. But you can't bring these differences in the church as a way of trying to separate yourselves and, and have some kind of status or hierarchy or make yourself feel superior to others. Well, I think this. They think that. They're lower than Paul says you're, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. Examine yourself. You set that stuff aside when you gather together in the name of Jesus. We are all on a journey. None of us are perfect. And we're learning to see the world as Jesus does together. It's a slow journey and we do it humbly together. But when we, when we bring these divisions into the church, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. Let's say a note about this. Paul is setting up a courtroom scene and 
We know that there will be a future judgment at which those who refuse the gospel, what he calls the world in verse 32, will be condemned. That's part of what we understand about this big story. But part of the strange privilege of being a member of God's people is to have one's judgment in advance. (laughs) So as not to be judged on the last day in Christ. So, verse 32, I think, is saying when the Lord judges us in the present time, those in Christ, the result is discipline. Things happen to us which are to be understood as both, you could say, punishments and warnings. And because the Lord's Supper is a moment in Christian living when the future is coming to meet us in the present, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again then this judgment and discipline is brought into focus here at the Lord's table and God is giving us a choice. Either examine and judge yourselves, making sure your behavior is appropriate at this meal or face the scrutiny and judgment of the Lord himself. Because it's not the church's table, it's the Lord's table. And he's the host. Now, I will say this as we talk about discipline. We're not going to talk a lot about this because we're focusing on unity this morning and some of what Jesus is doing to rearrange things. But I do want to say that God sometimes does use hard things to wake us up spiritually. And the Bible often calls that the discipline of the Lord. And again, living in a consumer world where we want everything to be comfortable and easy all the time. I I know that no one likes to hear this, but just as a pastor, I need to be honest. Spiritual growth is almost always uncomfortable, (laughs) always hard. Uh, We we need sometimes, I know we don't want to hear this, but sometimes we need pain and we need to pay attention to our sadness for God to wake us up and examine ourselves. And then the last thing, and then I've got two things I kind of want to walk us through. But the last thing I just love that he says, and he says this all the way through 1 Corinthians. Actually, he says this through all of his letters. His primary metaphor for us to understand each other in the church is that we are brothers and sisters. In other words, the church turns away traditional categories about status and superiorities and inferiorities because the church turns each person from such, such categories into the only category that Paul seems to use, siblings. We are one in Christ. We are now one body. We've drunk from the same spirit of God. So now we are brothers and sisters. And while many of our problems then become sibling rivalries and tensions, our solution is to act like loving siblings and family. I mean, Paul comes back to that drum again and again and again. But I want to hone in now on two things as it relates to... So last week we talked about ethnic divisions because what Paul is dealing with here is socioeconomic divisions and this kind of status hierarchy. I want to lean into that from a couple of different angles. Uh, first, let me, let me read this. Hierarchy, status, reputation, and connections were the way of the Roman Empire. But the church was meant to be something different, something other than the empire, something the world had never seen before. So when the Christians gathered to worship, to fellowship, to eat and to meet, and this this ruthless, divisive and status-shaped backbone of the empire was meant to be snapped, (laughs) 
to just, to just crush, be gone. There was no longer slave and free in the church. No more Roman, Greek, Egyptian, barbarian. This was God's grand social experiment. And the Romans, from elites to the slaves, experienced the church as nothing short of a wild revolution of equality. And I want to read, actually, I, 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 I come back to this book frequently, actually. It's a book by Richard Bauckham called Bible and Mission, Christian Witness in a Postmodern World. A few of you will like it. Some of you won't. It's a little bit more academic. But he's got a chapter in here where he's looking at this theme. It's actually similar to the theme we're looking at on Wednesday nights as a church. From the one to the many. So he talks about how, how the blessing from God goes from Abraham to all the families of the earth. From Israel to all the nations of the world. That the king who rules from Zion will rule to the ends of the earth. But his fourth category is that this from the one to the many is going to go to all by way of the least. And I just want to read a little bit of what he says. He's interacting with, with the way Paul is talking to the Corinthians in First and Second Corinthians. I mean, if you, in chapter 1, Paul will say, who do you think? You were, you were the least, and, but God chose you. <laughs> But he says, recent studies on 1 Corinthians have made very clear that social status is the issue in much of Paul's debate with the dominant faction in the Corinthian church. And listen to what he says. He says, the strong are those whose wealth and social position give them power and influence in society. While the people Paul calls weak are the powerless, the ordinary people with no say and no muscle in this social world in Rome. At Corinth, and Paul certainly does not mean only at Corinth, God singled out the poor and the powerless, choosing to begin his work with them. Not because God's love does not extend to the cultural and social elite, but actually for the sake of the wealthy and the powerful, as well as for the poor and the humble. Well, what does he mean by that? He says God's love has to reach the strong via the weak, Because the strong can receive the love of God only by abandoning their pretensions to status above others. Only when they see in God's choice of those without status, that status counts for nothing in God's sight, can they abandon the arrogance and the vested interests that prevent their relationship both with God and with others. God's shaming of the wise and the strong, in Paul's words, is this redemptive contradiction of their values. He's saying it has to be this way. And I honestly think he's just building off of the ministry of Jesus. If you've ever read through the Gospels, which if you haven't, I highly, highly recommend, (laughs) Jesus will say things like, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like a child. Someone who has no status in the first century Roman world. That's what you have to be like. And when Jesus tells these parables, who does he talk about? He talks about the Samaritan as being the great one in the story. I mean, he's always using the people at the bottom to say, no, that's the example of what it looks like to enter into my kingdom. And I think Paul is following that that ministry pattern. He says, this is the God who habitually overturns status, not in order to make the non-elite a new elite, because then you're just playing Babylon's game all over again, 
But in order to abolish status, to establish his kingdom in which none can claim privilege over others and all gladly surrender privilege for the good of others. We're just, we're just serving one another as a family. And he says, he says this theme of, of this, this going to all by way of the least, he says it's a necessary reminder that the church's mission cannot be indifferent to the inequalities and injustices of the world into which it is sent. The gospel does not come to each person only in terms of some abstracted generality or of human nature, but in the realities and differences of their social and economic situations. It engages with the injustices of the world on its way to the kingdom of God. And I want to read, this is really the sentence that drew me to this whole section. This means that as well as the outward movement of the church's mission and geographical extension and numerical increase, there must also be this downward movement of solidarity with the people at the bottom of the social scale of importance and wealth. It is to these, the poorest, those with no power or influence, the wretched, the neglected, to whom God has given a, seemingly a priority in the kingdom, not only for their own sake, but also for all the rest of us who can enter the kingdom only alongside of them. I, I don't think I understood that when I first came to Christ, alive to Jesus about 20 years, 25 years ago. I, I, I came alive to Jesus in a community where there was a, a little bit of an unspoken assumption that we need to go after the people in our community who have the greatest, I would say, Babylonian influence and power so that when they come to Christ, they can use their Babylonian influence and power to win others to Christ. But as I've gotten to know the heart of Jesus and what he preaches, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, I've learned that I've had to rethink a few things. That God has a heart for all people. It doesn't matter where you are on the scale. But God is not going to use the tools of Babylon in his kingdom. I mean, that's what Micah and Isaiah said. God is going to take these tools of destruction and turn them into tools of agriculture. <laughs> these tools that humanity has invented for death, he's going to, to recycle and use as tools for life. And that one of the ways the church exhibits this is by going after those on the bottom. The overlooked, the marginalized, that everyone else is, everyone else is happy they're there because it makes them feel superior to somebody else who's inferior. And Paul's saying, look, I know that happens out there in the world, but not in the church. Those divisions cannot come into the church. I don't care where you rank on the Roman status of popularity and importance. But you do not bring that into the church. And primarily, one of the places where Paul leans in the heaviest is this idea of slaves and masters. But Paul, and he says this, I mean, it's kind of here in the passage, but he says it more clearly in some of his other letters. Paul's going around and he's creating communities where slaves and masters, when they gather in this Jesus space, they are equals. And their relationship to one another is completely dissolved in terms of the power difference between them. And he's being very strategic. 
He's undermining the very basis of power difference, the status difference between them. He's letting the good news about King Jesus play out its natural implications. If Jesus died for me and Jesus died for my slave, then we're both on level ground before King Jesus. We are family members now, and I can't treat another family member the way I used to treat him or her before I knew all of this about Jesus. So Paul will deal with this in many places. Let me just read in Ephesians chapter 6. There's a couple of these household codes that are I think, honestly, if you understand what Paul is doing in them, they're really subversive in terms of, of how he's bringing about equality for people in the church. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, you read something that you wouldn't be surprised to read, honestly. You know, Paul's thinking about these human institutions that, that we've created since the days of Cain, since the days of Nimrod. And he says, okay, slaves, obey your earthly masters. You are in these human institutions, these structures that Cain built, that Nimrod built. So obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Oh, well, you, you, could, you could see someone saying that. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. That sounds like good counsel. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. All right, Paul. I see that. I see how that could work in in the way that we've arranged ourselves in this human structure. But then you get to verse 9 in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is what's radical. Like, I don't know if anybody had said this before, Paul. He then turns his gaze to the masters and literally, this is what it says. <laughs> masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I mean, nobody says that stuff. Don't threaten them. And then he says this. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. That is revolution. I mean, that's just one aspect of what Paul is doing where he believes that, that, okay, look, I don't know how I'm going to take down this whole human structure that's been built since the days of Cain and Nimrod. Babylon is still strong in the Roman Empire. <laughs> but Paul believes with Jesus that if you plant a seed and that tree grows from the inside, it can take down the whole castle. You understand? <laughs> from the inside out. I mean, that's just, how the church has silently and quietly just come and transformed and revolutionized. I mean, we could go thing after thing after thing about how human history has been changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just, it's incredible, right? Or how about Philemon? Here's another little letter. And just because it ties to some of the language Paul is using. If you don't know, Philemon is one of these really fun, short little letters. It doesn't get a lot of look because it's so short. But there was a runaway slave named Onesimus, and he found his way to Paul. He's a Christian, and he serves Paul. But Paul's like, okay, Onesimus, I need to send you back to Philemon. He's your master, but I'm going to send you back with this letter. (laughs) And again, just kind of the creative way. Paul, if you've been with us since our 2 Corinthians series, Paul really doesn't tell people what to do that often. But he lays out the compelling beauty of the love of God and the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing, and he's just inviting people to see it and live differently because of it. And in Philemon, in verse 16, he says this, Onesimus is no longer like a slave to you. 
He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. And that's forcing Philemon to say, well, would I treat Paul like a slave? Would I treat my brother like a slave? Then maybe I have to rethink everything about my relationship with Onesimus. And now the kingdom of God has come and the world is changing. 1 Corinthians 11 may be one of the clearest cases in the, in, the, in the New Testament of how the world's view of status counts for nothing in the church. Status doesn't matter at the table of the Lord. Now, I want to go one more step, and I want to talk about forgiveness as kind of a theological foundation. How do you get there? How do you begin to see people as equals? Maybe if you're honest, if you examine yourself, you say, I struggle with this. I mean, there's so many different ways that we divide ourselves. I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Packers fan. I can't like those Bears. You've seen their team on the field this year. How can I not feel? How do I not feel superior? I'm a Bears fan. Justin Fields is, I love Justin Fields. How can you not see a superior, right? How do you do this stuff? Well, comparing oneself with others can work two ways. Some people bolster their own sense of self-worth by feeling superior to others. Other people then lack a sense of self-worth and feel inferior. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's not comparing ourselves with others that matters. Self-worth is finally a matter of how God values us. And before God, self-worth is an all-or-nothing matter. Before God, none of us has a leg to stand on. Self-promotion before God is simply ridiculous. I think that's why Paul is getting sarcastic in verse 19. This is ridiculous. But also, before God, each of us is given the immeasurable value of being someone God loves. Which I've said this before. I like to say this frequently just to remind us because I know our self-worth is always under attack and we're always being encouraged to find our self-worth in all the wrong places. Value is determined by what someone is willing to pay, right? And every time you begin to wonder, now whether it's your own self-worth or the self-worth of another human being who seems to be on the other side of your divide, the value of every human life is the life of Jesus. That is what he paid. So you ask yourself, what is my self-worth? The life of Jesus. That's how valuable you are. That's, that's the biblical truth. Let that impact you as you participate in this sacred meal. And as you look around at those participating with you, Christ gave his life, ransomed you with his blood. That's how valuable you are. So we have to wrestle with these. Not, not until we clear these petty comparisons away. Not until we are able to be simply who we are before God. Not promoting ourselves by disparaging others. Not disparaging ourselves by comparison with others. But simply being ourselves. Able in God's sight to see ourselves for once as we truly are. Only then do we know what it means to be loved and valued by God and to find our identity and our self-worth in the only way that really counts in the end as given to us by God who made us and redeems us. And this is a journey. I was chatting with somebody in our church family this last week and they were chatting with a, with a mentor 
And their mentor asked them this question. How, how, when in your life have you known who you really are? And this person, because they've been through formed and we have some shared language in our discipleship pathway, they said to me, Jeff, you know, when they asked me that question, it crushed me. And I said, I don't think I've ever known who I really am. I've spent my whole life trying to be who other people tell me I am. You understand that's the backbone behind so much of this Babylonian thinking. You're a slave. You're inferior. That's how I see you. That's who you are. You're higher up on the status. You're important. That's how I see you. That's who you are. And so much of this Christian journey is learning to get outside of all that and allow yourself to see who you are in light of Christ, how God sees you. That's who you really are. We often talk about the discipleship journey is learning about who Jesus is. That's where we get the clearest expression of God. And then in light of that, we learn about who we are. (laughs) And what does that mean? And who our neighbor is. And what does that mean? So before God, those who despise themselves can know that even if they were the only sinner in the world, God's son would still have gone to the cross for them alone. I mean, God loves you that much. If you were the only sin, God would go to the cross for you. He loves you. But also for those of us who wrestle with prize and comparison and being better than others, you, you and I, we need to know that God's son went to the cross for all the other people that we may despise. That's, that's the heart of our God. That's what this kingdom is like. And then this is how God brings down the haughty and lifts up the lowly. Or how when Jesus says the last become first. This is God's great reversal of status. Whose purpose is to ensure that none can claim privilege or status above others. So God's forgiveness is something so much more than just what happens when we say sorry to God for this or that. It's about being able or we might say being enabled by God to acknowledge to God who we really are without pretending, without illusion, especially without comparing ourselves with others. It's the only way of really encountering God in these honest spaces. Does that mean that knowing God means that we ignore other people? Not at all. God's forgiveness, knowing ourselves to be forgiven sinners, frees us from the things that spoil our relationships with each other. It frees us from the need to prove anything. It frees us from envy and one-upmanship. It frees us from the craving for approval and praise. It liberates us to value each other the way we value ourselves or, excuse me, to love our neighbor as ourselves. So God's forgiveness, we could say, makes the church. It makes a community that is distinctive, not in feeling superior to others, but in knowing the God who demands all and forgives all and values each immeasurably. God's forgiveness, because it puts our relationship with God right and our relationships with other people right, is the root of everything else that it means to be God's people, the church. So Paul, in a sense, has this idealistic view of what a church could be, but it's founded on hard theological truths about who our God is and the natural outworking of these truths of what it means to be a collection of forgiven sinners means that all these divisions that we create out there 
God, God has no space for them in here. And we begin to discover that the most desirable society in the universe turns out also to be the humblest and the least exclusive. <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, the greatest society there is, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this perfect dance of eternal love are determined that the circle of love they share from all eternity should be ceaselessly and shamelessly welcoming to all. Because Christ hasn't returned yet, it's not full yet. And so they invite all who will to join them. No one is left out except those who refuse. And so we're going to be, again, invited to the table here and now. And if you, we talked about this, I, we, we don't practice that you have to be a certain denomination or you have to be baptized at our church. Look, if you believe in Jesus, you believe that by eating and, and drinking in the body and the blood, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again, um, then you, you are invited <laughs> to participate in this meal. And by practicing this meal together, we are declaring God's foolish wisdom. No one else would dream this up. We look around the room and we're not smothering all of us in salad dressing, right? We are distinct and unique. But we gather together and our differences enhance who we are. And it gives glory to God as we worship Him together at this table. So our ushers are going to come forward. I'm going to invite our worship team up and our ushers can get ready. If you're new to Crossview, the bread and the cup uh, are stacked. The bread is under the juice. Uh, But if you're gluten-free, the gluten-free bread is in the middle all on its own. But I'm going to invite you as we pass it to take it um, to talk with Jesus. Again, maybe there's just something personal in your life that you want to chat with him about or confess. Maybe as we talk about these divisions from the outside and how they're playing on your heart and you're feeling envy or comparison or hatred, just sit with Jesus and ask him to change you, to save you, to rescue you. Sit with Jesus and then I'll come back up and as one body we will participate in the meal together. All right, let me just do one more. Connect the dots, right? Sin left a crimson stain, messed us up something fierce, right? So we come here broken into the presence of Jesus, into this community, and we're washed white as snow. And again, your value and your worth is displayed by what God gave for you. But then we are empowered. Spirit of God comes upon us. And we go forth into a broken world and we become wounded healers. (laughs) We become agents of grace. We learn it here and we take this way of love, this way of peace into a war-torn world. And we are a part of this Jesus revolution. So even as Paul is ending his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I mean, just listen listen to his call to them. And it's your call this week. This is what it means to to live into this Jesus way. Be joyful. Don't be anxious and fearful. Be joyful. Grow to maturity. It's time to grow up. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Grow up. Change. Grow. Humble yourselves. But do this while you encourage each other. And you live in harmony and peace. 
And the God of love and peace will be with you. We all need him. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen?